0: decisions. And if the reason you're asking this question is because you want to please God, then that's a, a genuinely good desire for us to have as Christians. But there's a reason that there are so many books on the shelves trying to answer this question. That's because God has very obviously not given us an individualized roadmap for our lives. Is it possible though that God has revealed to us something of His will for our lives? And if He has, shouldn't we prioritize the things He has revealed over the things He's purposefully not? The answer to that question is yes. Yes, God has revealed something about His will for your life, and it is something we need to prioritize. And that's the point of the text we're going to be studying this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to 1 Thessalonians. Chapter five. It's going to be a letter in the back of your Bible in the New Testament near the end. First Thessalonians. Chapter five, you're looking, if you're not familiar with your Bibles, you're looking for the large number. It's number five. Whoa. And we're going to be in verses sixteen through eighteen. Paul planted the church at Thessalonica, and after only a few weeks, the Jews there who opposed him basically ran him out of town. And this letter that he's written to this church comes following a, a, a good report, some encouraging news that he's heard from Timothy, who's visited Thessalonica. And so when he wrote this letter, Paul's primary purpose was to give this young church that In God's providence, He did not have time to stay with and shepherd for very long. He's giving them encouragement. He's kind of nudging them in the right direction. Continue to grow spiritually. Continue to grow in holiness. And this text, verses 16-18, through is one of those nudges. So follow along as I read. Chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray, Lord, that You would cause it to affect our hearts this morning. By Your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to Your truth. May it sink deep in within us. May we apply it to our lives faithfully. Amen. So I could summarize this sermon for you in a single sentence, if I could, it would, it would be this, God's will for your life is for you to find joy and contentment in Him at all times and in all circumstances. I'm going to say that one more time for you note takers. God's will for your life is for you to find joy and contentment in Him at all times and in all circumstances. So as we unpack these verses, as I I walk through that sort of thesis statement, I'm going to work through three points. So again, if you like to take notes, these are going to give you sort of a, a, a hook to hang your hat on as we go along. Point number one, the pursuit of joy. Point number two, the practice of prayer. Point number three, the posture of gratitude. So point one, the pursuit of joy. Point two, the practice of prayer. And three, the posture of gratitude. And I'll be saying these again if you didn't get those down. Number one, the pursuit of joy. So so Paul's words here, he opens with the command to rejoice always. But this command is a paradox. What do I mean by that? That word paradox. A paradox is something that contradicts our expectations. So, it's running counter to what we would think this verse might say. And there's a reason for that. Paul is commanding us to do a thing, experience joy, that we know comes and goes. Joy is not like a switch that we can flip on and off. And yet he's telling us to always experience joy. Now before I was a Christian, I was a, I was a very cynical atheist in my past before Christ. I would have looked at a text like this And my immediate reaction would be to think, oh, I see what's going on here. The Bible is teaching Christians to sort of fake it till you make it. It's teaching Christians to put on this shallow sort of fake happiness and to wear it like a mask. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're something like what I was before Christ. And you're thinking the same thing. Well, I hope that this sermon this morning will help to correct that misunderstanding. On the other hand, maybe you're not as cynical as I was. But maybe you're looking at this apparent paradox and you're thinking, surely Paul can't mean rejoice always. He's bound to just be exaggerating here. But when Paul says rejoice always, he really does mean always. And I think the sheer number of times he uses this always language throughout this letter shows us that he really means it. You look back at verse 15 Paul says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And if we go a little farther forward, so skipping verse 16, which we're talking about now, verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. This is just always language. So how is this possible that we could rejoice always? Well, it's possible, brothers and sisters, because Paul is talking about a type of joy that's different than the type of joy we tend to think about. He's talking about Christian joy. And Christian joy is very different than worldly joy. So think about all the things in the world that you love. Think about the things in this world that are good things God has given us that you can take joy in. Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe it's... a a nice car that you have. Maybe it's the pride and satisfaction you take in owning a home. Or maybe it's joy in your appearance. Maybe it's joy in creating beautiful things. Or maybe it's joy in your children or or in your grandchildren. But these worldly joys, as good as these things are, these worldly joys fall short of Christian joy because all of these things are bound up in circumstances. And circumstances always change. So, if your joy's in your car, and I mean that as somebody who restored an old Chevy truck that I am quite happy with, that thing's going to rust and fall apart. And someday it'll just be a pile of rubble. If your joy's in your home, well, homes burn down. Maybe it's in your clothes. Those clothes are going to wear out and turn into nothing but rags. And if all of your worldly treasures are somehow preserved, you won't last to continue to experience them. Because our bodies break down and ultimately we die. Those fleeting joys are not the same as Christian joy because they are bound up in circumstances. Christian joy endures. And Christian joy endures because it is firmly rooted and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. Paul says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God, in Christ Jesus, for you. Jesus Christ, His person, and His work, that's the source of Christian joy. And that joy isn't a mystical feeling, it's not just an experience, it is a profound set of truths, that do not change. And those truths are what we call the gospel. It's a set of facts. It's the fact that God is holy and He is just and He is perfect in His goodness. And it's the fact that we are not. And as fallen creatures of His who have turned against Him and have rebelled against Him, we rightfully deserve God's justice and His punishment. And yet God sent His Son Who laid down his own life in our place and shed his blood on the cross for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God? He died for sinners like us and he gave us his righteousness to cover us in our imperfection and wickedness. And, brothers and sisters, if we respond to that in repentance and in faith and trust in him, that joy is ours and it does not go away. It can't be taken away because it can't change those facts are etched in stone for all intents and purposes. Now if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it is is the first time you've heard this, this concept, find someone here in this room, find one of the pastors in this church and talk to them about this joy and what it might mean for you in your life. But this joy, the joy of the gospel that we have through Christ, though we experience it, that doesn't mean Christians don't grieve. This is very important. Christians grieve. We mourn. We experience the pains of this world. But the joy we have in Christ, it puts those griefs on a leash and it keeps them from running into despair. Look at what Paul says here in Thessalonians just a few verses earlier. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep those who have died that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope Christians grieve but we grieve in a different way than the world because we have the joy of Christ many years ago I mentioned to you that I was an atheist before I was saved I I was very hostile to anything and everything that had to do with religion And at one point in this time, I saw what this joy looks like in the face of grief. A friend of mine who I had served with in the military was killed in Afghanistan. He was a Christian. I knew he was and I knew his wife was a Christian. And I will never forget going to his funeral and watching his wife stand up before us and speak about his death. At the time it, it blew my mind I couldn't fathom how she would have the strength and composure to be able to get up and talk about something that was so fresh and clearly so painful to her and through her tears she she told everyone in that chapel that she knew her husband was with the Lord and as she cried I could see I could see her smiling through her tears as she said that. And this juxtaposition between this, this otherworldly joy and her grief, it made no sense to me. But I get it now. I get it. In Christ, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading. And nothing in our circumstances can change that. Even death does nothing to change that death just ushers us into the presence of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is Christian joy. Think of it like, to use an illustration that may be foreign to some of you, like gardening. So I like to garden. Uh, in Alabama, when you grow plants in the summer, creation tries to kill them. You, know, you get your hot sun and your, your dry long weeks without rain. And you'll see that your plants, they kind of fight for water in the topsoil. And so you plant something and it sends out all these little roots to try and get as much water as it can. And and there's other plants doing the same thing and they're all in competition for the same resource. But as I learned about plants, I learned that there's a type of plant that's just uniquely adapted for climates like ours. It has something called a taproot. And it's this long, thick, like finger-thick root that just goes straight down into the soil. And that root taps into a deeper and more sustainable and more sure source of water than any of the little fringe roots that the competition around it is sending out. That's what Christian joy looks like. To be in Christ is to have a tap root that goes to a deeper joy than any of the circumstances of this world can touch. But it's not something we always experience, is it? So, so Paul commands us rejoice always. And if you're like me, I'm thinking, wow, I I don't always do that. For Christians, this joy can be difficult to hold on to. So how does a Christian experience this joy when when we lose a child? Or or when a spouse is unfaithful to us? Or we we get very bad news from the doctor? Well, as I've already suggested, with the title of this point, we have to pursue joy. Joy is not something that just happens to us. Maybe, as a Christian, you've heard a uh, a Christian teacher say, or you've read somewhere, that you just need to let go and let God. Brothers and sisters, this sort of passive approach to the Christian life is not helpful. And it's not helpful because it's not biblical. God's Word does not encourage us to sit back and be be passive in our pursuit of Christian joy and contentment. God's Word tells us to strive after it. Look at, uh, for example, uh, Jesus in John chapter 15. You don't need to flip there. But Jesus talks in that chapter of John's Gospel about experiencing fully the joy that He has for us. And how does He say to do that? He says we must abide in Him and keep His commandments. So to be clear, when I'm talking about pursuing Christian joy, I'm not saying that our efforts have anything to do with securing the source of that joy in Christ. That's Christ's work, and it's finished. It's a free gift to all who trust in Him and repent of their sins. But our efforts have something very important to say about how we experience that joy in this life. So how do we experience that joy? How do we pursue it? Well, as with most questions that come from Scripture... We can usually find the answer if we just read a little farther in the section we're wondering about. And so, look now to the next verse, which will bring us to our second point. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Here we see the same sort of always language, just as the command to rejoice always doesn't mean we never experience grief as Christians. The command to pray always doesn't mean you can't go watch television sometimes, or stop and eat a sandwich, What Paul is saying here is that we need to regularly and consistently practice prayer. To put it in a negative way, we might say we should never pass up the opportunity to pray. But how we think about prayer is going to profoundly shape how we understand this command. I think too often as Christians, we mistakenly think of prayer as a tool that we use to get God to change our circumstances or to give us good things, one pastor who I've read on this has a very helpful illustration. He says that Christians tend to treat prayer like a prescription drug, right so if you have a, an ailment, let's say you get bronchitis, you go to your doctor, your doctor writes you prescription, you go pick it up at the pharmacy, you take your pills to treat the symptoms, and when the symptoms go away, you just you throw the rest of the medicine out, you move on, you don 't need it anymore. That's often how we think of prayer. Something bad happens or we need something and we rush to God and as soon as our symptoms are gone, we forget to pray. We don't feel that we need it anymore. Now it's true that God gives good gifts to His children. And it is true that He often does this in response to our prayer. But this is not the primary purpose of prayer. First and foremost, prayer is a way that we bring honor to God. He commands us to pray. And our obedience to Him, our prayers to Him, are a form of worship. It pleases Him. But the second reason that we pray, and this is very important, listen carefully, God has given us prayer for our own spiritual benefit. He's given us prayer not primarily so that we might get Him to change our circumstances or to change His mind so that it will change us. Prayer itself shapes our hearts. When we turn to the Lord in prayer, we acknowledge every time our utter dependence on Him. When we turn to Him, even in frustration, even in lament, even in grief, turning to God and not turning away from Him humbles us and it reorients our hearts and our desires toward Him. So for, for Christians... Prayer isn't like a medication we take when we're sick. For Christians, prayer is like oxygen. Prayer is a source of life. Prayer is breathing. And this regular practice of prayer keeps God and not our circumstances central to our lives. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it is much harder for my heart to become fixated on my situation when I'm praying, when I'm regularly turning to God. And it's in this way that prayer helps us to tap into that joy that we have in Christ. But again, this isn't easy. It's not an easy thing to do. It takes pursuit. It takes effort. Martin Luther describes prayer as as a form of warfare. He calls prayer a labor above all labors since he who prays must wage a mighty warfare against the doubt and murmuring excited by the faint-heartedness and unworthiness we feel within us. You see, the times when we find it hardest to pray are usually the times when we need prayer the most. So I want to give you three very practical tips for fighting this warfare. When you're struggling to pray, when you're struggling to experience Christian joy, use CPR. Here's what I mean by that. I've spent all this time that I've been up here so far talking about how you as an individual can experience joy and practice prayer because that's God's will for your life. But Paul didn't write these words to an individual, did he? He wrote these words to a particular church. It would actually maybe be helpful to read these verses as Sixth Avenue, rejoice always. Sixth Avenue, pray without ceasing. Sixth Avenue, be grateful in all circumstances. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So what do I mean by CPR? Well, CPR, as you probably know, it's something that you do when a person is incapacitated, when someone can't breathe on his or her own. And so you use rescue breaths to keep that person alive during that period of time. And just like this, when we find that it's too hard for us to pray, we may need a brother or sister in Christ to pray with us and to carry us through that. Those of you who who know me and know my family may know that my wife, Catherine, has suffered for years with what will be a terminal illness that has been slowly killing all the organs in her body. And there have been times during our struggle with her disease that I have, I have felt hopeless. And I have felt completely unable to pray. One of those times a few years ago, I, I told a brother of my struggles. I said, I said brother, I, I just can't pray. I just can't. I feel like I can't even talk to God right now. And this brother called me every day for well over a week. He didn't put a ton of time into it. He didn't need to. He just picked up the phone and said, hey brother, how you doing? Let's pray. And he prayed with me every day. And by the end of that week and a half, he asked me, so how are you doing? Are you able to pray? I said, yeah, by God's grace, I'm, I'm praying again. He was helping me survive spiritually when I was too weak to pray on my own. This, this was rescue breathing. If prayer is breathing, he was breathing for me. This is what it looks like for a church to pray without ceasing. A church where brothers and sisters love each other so well that when someone's stumbling, you carry him or her through. A second tip for you if you find it difficult to pray, root out sin in your life. So number one is, is use CPR. Number two, root out sin in your life. If you have a secret sin in your life that's just crept in, perhaps you've been unwilling or unready or hesitant to confess to someone you trust or or to just put to death, I can tell you right now, you're not going to have a desire to go to the Lord in prayer. You're going to find it difficult because your conscience will be burdened with the guilt of that unconfessed sin. Maybe you have a sinful attitude toward God. Maybe you struggle to approach the Lord in prayer because in your mind you think of the circumstances that are causing you pain and you're blaming God for those circumstances. Whatever it may be, if that sin is in your life, you will find that turning to God in prayer is like trying to run through water put your sins to death, confess them to one another and repent of them so that you have the freedom and the peace of mind, the, the unburdened conscience to turn to him. Finally, point three, consider what you pray about. What do you pray about most when you pray? If you just just jotted down a list of the, the top three things you pray for most often. Would that list look like you asking God to change your circumstances? If that's what you always go to, first and foremost in your prayer, I think you will find that this sort of prayer does very little to help us tap into the joy we have in Christ. Now, it's not wrong to ask God to change your circumstances or even to meet your basic physical needs. When Jesus models for us how to pray, he says we should ask God to give us our daily bread. And there's a sense in which that request should be understood to mean literally physical sustenance, food and water. But when we allow Scripture and the general themes and priorities we see in God's Word to shape the general themes and priorities of our own prayer, what you will find is that slowly but surely, your desires are conformed to God's desires. Look, for example, at the prayers that Paul offers in this very letter to the Thessalonians. Look at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 13 here. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief. In the truth. Flip one over to chapter 3. Chapter 3 verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. I'm sorry, that's not it. Where am I? Forget that verse. Now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. And for all as we do for you. And then look over back to chapter 5 where we just were. In verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of things is Paul praying for here? Everywhere we see Paul praying for the Thessalonians, we see him praying prayers that continually focus on their faith, on the evidence of their faith in their lives, on the continued growth of this church in holiness. And Paul has very good reason to be praying that the Lord would change their circumstances. This young church is experiencing persecution from their pagan neighbors. What does Paul pray for? Praise God would continue to change their hearts. That's where He goes first. So, when you pray for your children, do you just pray? Do you merely pray that they get good grades? Or do you pray that the Lord would work in their hearts and that you would see evidence of this? Do you pray for your job and pray that you'll have financial stability? Or do you first pray that God would give you opportunities to share the gospel with your coworkers, with your boss? When you pray that you would experience joy in Christ and when your desires are conformed through prayer to the desires of God, you will experience joy in your prayers. Point three, the posture of gratitude. Here we look now at the last of these three verses. Verse 18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. On its face, this may be the hardest verse for you to wrap your head around. When tragedy strikes, it's hard to imagine turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, thank you. More often than not, we're thinking, Lord, how could I be thankful for this? Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're not sure you're a Christian, you may find that this is actually... One of the easier commands to understand. There's a reason for that. That's because this is one of those rare places where where the secular self-help world and Christian theology appear to overlap. Here's what I mean by that. The non-Christian world loves to promote the virtue of gratitude. So you see self-help gurus basically citing research that shows that gratitude is good for you. Gratitude means when when people express gratitude they're more successful they're generally happier they're generally more satisfied with life so what should you do you should just be grateful a good example of this would be uh, deepak chopra he says that gratitude is a soul quality that brings our attention into the present which is the only moment in which we can experience joy love compassion and peace here he is as a spiritual secular guru just just Promoting gratitude generally. But there's an obvious question that these worldly philosophies don't want to talk about. They don't want to answer. And that question is this. To whom are you grateful? You see, trying to just cultivate, cultivate gratitude generally, without having an object or a person to be grateful to, it's sort of like writing a beautiful heartfelt love letter sealing it in an envelope putting it in the mailbox but addressing it to no one it may make you feel kind of warm and fuzzy but it is ultimately meaningless christian gratitude on the other hand has a definite object and that object that person that direction is gratitude toward god the sovereign creator of the universe What does this posture of gratitude look like? This orientation toward God in gratitude. How might we express this? Well, I think it's easy for us to think about how we might be grateful to God when we're experiencing his blessings. That comes naturally to us. But how are we to be thankful to God in the midst of suffering? I have a good friend named John Musimi. John and I did a pastoral internship together for about six months in Washington, D.C. And John and his wife, Moraine, came to D.C. with their four children, all four of whom were under the age of four, so his house was exciting. And John, he did this thing that always cracked me up. When his kids, we'd have meals together, when his kids would be picky about their food, he'd always look at them and he'd say, children, finish your food. There are children in Africa who are starving right now. And this was funny because John was from Africa. John is Kenyan. And we always would crack up at this, but it stuck out in my mind that this glib approach to gratitude, that's how the world tends to think of gratitude, right? Look on the bright side. There's somebody in a situation worse than you. Just be glad that you're not that person. That's not what Paul is teaching here. Paul is not saying that when your house is burning down, you need to be thankful for the warmth of the fire. The gratitude Paul is talking about is very different. Our gratitude, being a posture of the heart towards God, is a continual turning toward God and being thankful for who he is despite our circumstances. John's wife died shortly after he returned to Africa. This was just a few months ago. We heard from him after a few days of being back in Kenya that she had, she had become ill and very, very rapidly died. Just a matter of, of two days. And John, unsurprisingly, was shocked. He was struggling with the grief and the difficulty of, of trying to somehow communicate to his, his four little children that their mother was not coming home from the hospital. What do you say to a brother or sister in a situation like this? Well, well saying look on the bright side is one of the most harmful things we could do. This is why we need to understand this verse. This verse is not saying be thankful for all circumstances. It's saying be thankful in all circumstances. It's saying be thankful in all circumstances that God is still God. That God is who he says he is. It's being thankful to God for God. God is good. His purposes are good. He is faithful to his promises. He is just. He is merciful. And he is in control of everything. And so we can be thankful in everything. We see examples of this throughout scripture. We see one in Psalm 22. Turn with me there. Psalm 22. It's one that will likely be familiar to all of us. Starting in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. This is, a, this is just a picture of suffering. These words are familiar because our Lord said them on the cross as he suffered. But look at the next verse. Look at verse 3. Yet you are holy. In the midst of this darkness, the psalmist turns and says, You're still God. You are still holy. And he clings to that. I can't begin to imagine what my my brother John went through when his wife died, but it's my prayer that he clung to that. He clung to the fact that God is who God is and was grateful for it. And as John's friend, I found one of the things that I could thank God for was that God had allowed his wife to live until they were back home with their church. I knew that the Lord and his kindness had carried them there. Why is that? Well, it's because, as I've already mentioned These these commands, these verses are for the church. It's my prayer that what you've heard this morning in this sermon, what you've heard from this text, it's my prayer that it will benefit you spiritually, personally, individually. But it's also my prayer that you might be the means by which God uses these verses to help someone else to pursue joy, to practice prayer, and to adopt a, a posture of gratitude. So I want to end this sermon as I began it. What is God's will for your life? When you find yourself asking that question, remember that what God has made clear is that God wants you to find joy and contentment in Him at all times and in all circumstances. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus. We thank You that we are united to him through your holy spirit that we are found in him and that because we are in him lord we can experience fully the joy that we have in your gospel we ask lord that you would help us to pursue this joy that as a church this church Sixth avenue church of god might be built up and edified and encouraged to pray without ceasing and to be grateful to thank you in all circumstances for who you are. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.